Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. This week is a culmination week um, of a series that we've been in now. This is week four, and this is when we wrap this up. You guys, next week is already Advent. I don't know. That just sprung on me when I walked in and Willie hung these beautiful lights already, and I'm like, it's almost here. So next week, we start into Advent, but this week, we want to st- uh, wrap up this series that we've been calling Temple Presence. Now, what we want to do every now and then is people who want to study the Bible, which is a really important piece of what we do here together on Sundays, but we study it in different places and different pieces. And so from time to time, it's good to stop, take a step back and say, what is the full story of God going on from the scriptures? What is it that we see of the overarching stories? So through the years, when we're studying in different places, we're remembering the big picture story of God. And in this series, the way we've been tracking the story of God is through the presence of God, asking the question, where Where is the presence of God seen? Uh, How is the story seen through where the presence of God is with the people in any given piece of history, Um, either history past or the story still to come? And the reason that we're doing this, whether you've been in church a long time and it's just really good to dwell in beautiful truths from time to time, even if you've heard the story before, or remembering that some of you are are new to um, to thinking about what it means to follow God or to follow Jesus. And, And it's good to hear the story all in one place. So wherever you are, the thing that we wanna really hit home in this series is that we see that presence matters, the presence of God with the people matters. We have an incredibly relational God who has used incredible pursuit and creativity to make sure that presence marks the people who are following God. And we started out way in the beginning as things were meant to be in the Garden of Eden. We saw in the creation narrative that Adam and Eve enjoyed perfect, unmitigated presence with God, meaning they were walking in the cool of the garden with God until they fell in the temptation to think that maybe they should take the knowledge of good and evil for themselves into their own hands. And now the relationship between a holy, perfect God and unholy people now required mediation. It required something in the gap in order to protect the people, but to keep relationship present, to keep relationship happening. And so we looked as we saw these people now on the move, um, nomadic people for a long time. And as they moved from the garden, we kept asking, where is the presence of God with the people now? Where do we find God's presence? Early on in the Old Testament, we see there are some places where there's either God appearing in a physical form, or there's a form of cloud or fire. And we see these as amazing, miraculous moments of God choosing to become present in a way that offers guidance guidance for people who are who are trying to find their way. God offers guidance in these in these special moments, but there's not a sense of permanence yet until we get to the instructions for the tabernacle which is the movable tent place of presence, and then the temple itself. Both of these showing that God is not contained, but God honors that we are limited by physical space. And so God creates sacred spaces for humans who are limited. We read in Exodus 25, 8, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Here in that, the sense of permanence and ongoing dwelling, a sense of place, 
grace, for relationship, and for reverence. So we've been following this journey along, and we see that God's presence with the people fosters the relationship that is core not only to their identity, who they are, but also to their purpose, their stated purpose as a people. I want to do two quick observations at this point. See, these places up to this point, they still require mediation between a holy God and an unholy people, right? Post-garden, we need mediation. And as it turns out, these places are not permanent. We learned that. That was what the hope was, that this would be permanent places, but, but they weren't as permanent as people had hoped. Temples are plundered and torn apart and rebuilt and then taken back over time and time again. Priests fail in their duties, or at least they're not holy and perfect mediators. Communities are using the places of worship for commerce. We see that this system is not yet complete. But we hear throughout the Old Testament whispers of something else to come. God will be with us, Emmanuel, in a special way. And then that was last week. I was joining you online. By the way, very different experience to be here in person and online. So bless you, those of you who are online. There really are other people in this room. You guys, you can't hear you during the doxology. You can't hear, like, it's just a very strange dynamic. But I'm glad we had it. I was um, joining you online last week, and Sam did a wonderful job of talking about what we call the Christ event, that moment in history when God's self came into the world in a new way unlike any other. And now, listen to what happened at that point. Uh, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We see that dwelling word again, our keywords in this series. So God's self entering into the human experience, walking, talking, eating, living among us. And while I love that part of the story, story, Sam did a great job. I can't keep dwelling there. He covered that last week. If you missed it, please listen to that. But we need to ask the question now, what about now? That event happened. I mean, if you take the view of history, we sitting here, we missed the moment when we could have walked up and shook the hand of Jesus and introduced ourselves. We missed that moment in history of his presence on earth. But yet, we know everything changed in that moment. And so we ask the question again, what about God's presence now? Now today, in order to cover a lot of ground quickly, I'm going to give you a fire hose of scripture references. If you are a note taker, scribble some down dwell on them, think about them uh, later, maybe go back because we're going to go move quickly through a lot of truth, biblical truth. So what we're going to look at today is where do we look at for now and forever? So if we look at the list of where we've been, we've been through the garden, the special appearances, the tabernacle, the temple, the Christ event. What about now and what about our forever future? Now we know with Jesus as the son of God, John 3, 16 to 17 tells us that Jesus is the very presence of God. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That was a saving moment in the history of the world, a big, big deal moment. But when Christ, post-resurrection, then returned to God, he sent the promised advocate, the Holy Spirit, which Christ had said would happen while he was walking and talking and with his disciples. So John 16 here, 13 and 14. Jesus said... 
But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He'll not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. So we have a new, a new um, way of God's presence with us. And so in this moment where we stand after the, uh, Jesus has ascended now, we stand in a place where um, we see two different facets that are interesting and in where the temple presence of God is now. We have to consider both mediation and presence quickly. First of all, mediation. This whole time since the garden, we've talked about, we need some system of mediation, the role of temples and priests and sacrificed that now has become permanently completed in Christ. We'll circle back to that. So mediation forever changed because of the Christ event. And then the second thing is let's talk about presence. The presence of God now exists in every single follower of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. That's amazing. We go from one occasional uh, encounter with uh, God manifesting in a certain way from time to time to guide to every single believer of Jesus having full access to the Spirit of God for guidance and for all of life. Like that, you guys, that's a mind-blowing change of what's happened because that's what we're told in the New Testament. We are the very temple or dwelling place of God. Listen for some of our series keywords in these passages. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple God's spirit dwells in you. Remember the dwelling place? I will dwell among them in the tabernacle. Then Christ is where God dwells with us. And now we're the temples because God's spirit dwells in us. Ephesians 2.22. And in him, meaning Christ, you also, you too, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So we see the presence of God experienced in and through the people of God. These are followers of Jesus who have accepted, accepted that, hey, I need the saving grace of Jesus to do this mediating work. I accept that, and the Holy Spirit now dwells within us. And we see those keywords, temple and dwelling. And it's us. It's us now. That's the answer to God's presence now, those who have submitted to Christ as Savior. As a side note, Verses like this make me wonder how we ever got that false duality between physical and spiritual beings. You know, some people in the church have sort of separated what's of our bodies versus spiritual. And like here, it's so clear. You guys, our bodies matter. Our presence matters because this physically and spiritually is the dwelling place of the living God. That's a really amazing thing to state. And that means that our presence matters. So that's a little side note. Um, so that's where the presence is. I want to circle back for a minute to that mediation part. We're going to follow for a minute and go back into some of the other imagery that we've picked up through this series, that of the temple veil. Okay, so we saw early on, there was literally a veil, a curtain. It was intricately and detailed description on how it was stitched to have all of these ornate Eden references to garden. And it was literally a veil that separated the holiest of holies as a protection from the rest of the temple. There was literally a veil there. That's the veil we're talking about. It represents the mediation, the in-between system, right, that was necessary. The priests in the temple needing safety yet presence. The veil is a representation of that. And when God's self, through the Son of God, offered the divine and perfected sacrifice of God's self, that literally tears the veil, 
It's all undone. Matthew 27 said, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What does that mean for us? It means that for all of time, that sacrifice is one and done. All of time for everyone. You can see Hebrews 7.27 to meditate on that more. So the mediation system, that temple system, the curtain, the veil, all of it was no longer needed because that had forever been accomplished in Christ's one sacrifice. Hebrews 10, 19 and 20. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up to us through the curtain, that is his body. And so this is now a forever change. I've been reading, recently was reading through Hebrews in my personal devotional time. You guys, there's so much beautiful language in the book of Hebrews about the transition from temple to new covenant in Christ. The transitional idea of the priesthood then and now Christ is our forever high priest. And amazingly enough, with Christ as our high priest, the other thing that we learn in this stage of the history is that we are a priesthood. We, we are called a royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2.9. We're called mediators, or conduits of God's presence. We are given a ministry, and we're called ambassadors of this ministry of reconciliation. You guys, these are like really big titles that if we've been around church a long time, we can kind of forget the, the depth and the richness of what's being said. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in 17. Therefore, if anyone is... Well, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We therefore are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's an open invitation, by the way. So in the now, we see where is the presence of God? It's in us. And you remember earlier in the series when we talked about what mattered about the presence of God, we saw not only identity for the people, but purpose innate in their identity was their purpose to bless all the nations and now we see that same thing where it's come full circle we find presence of God and a purpose in that it's remarkable to consider that we might be active agents in the entire meta-narrative of God's story we're active agents in that plot line that's where we are in history now I've always loved Gordon Fee's language. He has taught me so much about the active role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church now. Um, and what one of the things he says, I'm not direct quoting him, but it's so important to remember, Christ not only saves us from something, from our sins, from eternal separation with God, we're not only saved from something, but we're saved into something. We're saved into a unfractured communion with God again. I just think it's really beautiful. We're saved into a people with a purpose, actually joining God in the renewal of all things. Because we are still in a place in our history now where we're waiting for the someday. If we look back at the slide of the list of the whole story of the cosmos, right? We still have the future that will someday come where God's presence will be. 
I love the lyrics and the song, Take Me Back to the Garden. We're gonna sing it in the second half here. But I love it where we, we think back, like take me back to that garden where it was so simple to love. It was so simple to trust. Everything was unfractured and unmitigated. We had perfect union with God. Take me back to that. And that's our future, you guys. That is the future that is coming. A new heaven and new earth coming together in a mysterious, holy, perfected way. When I read some of these passages, keep an ear out for some of our keywords, right? So the reading that Kristen read today, when a new heaven and new earth come to be, and we read this, I hear, this is from Revelation 21. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place, our keyword, a dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. It goes on to describe the holy city. I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. They are the temple. On no day will its gates ever be shut. There will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. It goes on to describe a river and a tree in the middle of this um, uh, this area is total garden Eden imagery again, right? But now it's in a city, you guys. It's in a city now. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. Remember Moses? They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. This is the garden that we get to return to where all is made right where we are marked purely with our proper identity, our truest identity again, where sacred space touches down and merges with our reality and the gates are thrown open, never again to be closed. The throne of presence is at the center and we see unmitigated presence of God with the people, like in the garden, but more expansive, more inclusive. The garden is a city for the healing of all the nations but we're not there yet, are we? And that's where I feel like the tension lies for us in the reality of where we stand down. I'm gonna pause in the fire hose of scripture for a second. When I was reading through Hebrews, the language of this new covenant comparing temple presence to our standing in Christ now, it occurred to me that some of the beauty and power and shock of that language that the author of Hebrews is trying to communicate to the people, some of that is just simply lost on us a bit, right? Because the fact is, we're quite far away from that system. It's not ingrained in us for hundreds of years of our cultural history, of our cultural imagination, knowing that this was the way to be right with God, have it so ingrained in us that this book, this language for the people listening and reading, hearing the book of Hebrews, it would have been a shock. It would have been beautiful. And to us, it feels like it's a little bit removed time-wise and culturally. So similarly, I think that the urgency of where we stand now in the grand story of God's story, the urgency can feel kind of like, kind of like theoretical, right? It doesn't feel real sometimes. Yeah, yeah, temple, the temple of the living God. That's great. For sure, royal priesthood, got it. 
Got it. Ambassadors. Ambassadors for God. Got it. Whatever. Like, I think we can kind of make light of the hugeness of these names that have been spoken over the followers of Jesus because there's monotony in the waiting. I may be biased right now. I spent several days completely in isolation, but I really think that maybe just highlighted what I do feel. There is monotony in the waiting. It is hard to stay postured with expectancy for a long time, to truly stand like, I am expectant. This is what's going to come. There's renewal work happening now, and there's more to come. And so I wonder, like, are the followers of Jesus in some ways just growing a little bit weary? I think when I look around or when I assess my own heart, that maybe sometimes instead of expectancy and anticipation, I see more of a spectrum somewhere between like despair to apathy. I sometimes, if I tap into my inner valley girl, I would assess myself being somewhere near whatever right now. That's where I'm at, whatever. That was like my language for a long time. But I do, I sometimes can just feel like if I really am trying to preach about expectancy and anticipation, but I have to assess my own heart before coming up here before you. And I was like, I'm really whatever right now. I can just feel that. It's hard to hold expectancy and anticipation for a long time. It's a silly example, but have you ever been to a surprise party where the person's running really late? And in the beginning, you're like, <gasps> with every person who walks in the door and you're all ready and you're all on edge. And then by the time they finally arrive, you're like sipping a beverage and having a chat with someone and like, hey, happy birthday, you know? Like, it's hard to hold that, that feeling for a long time. We get distracted or weary or something. And so I was thinking this week in my own whateverness about the anecdote for that spectrum from despair to apathy. And I think the anecdote for those who call Jesus Lord, just it has to be hope. It has to be hope. And I don't mean wishful thinking. Like, oh, I really hope it snows this week before I get my Christmas tree. I don't mean like that kind of thing. And I don't just mean optimism. I'm a huge fan of optimism, but it's not the same as hope. Optimism is like, let's just find the silver lining in this mess. That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about hope. Hope is rooted in promises that have already been fulfilled. I think of this, if you think in your mind, if this was you, that's fantastic. Or if you know of it with somebody else, think about a really healthy childhood, a home where you know this child is really loved. And that child has learned through their experience that when I am hungry, I will be fed. When I have a boo-boo, I will be hugged and kissed. When I am scared, I can find refuge in my parents' arms. There's like this established history and you see this, this um, beautiful kind of assumption that what is promised will come true through these good parents. If you've ever seen a child that is so loved, you, you know that posture. Do I need help reaching a toy? Do I need to be warmed up? Am I just out of sorts and I need a snuggle? Like I know where to go to get all of that met because there's an established history of trust. They have no reason to believe otherwise because of the established history of being a child in that home. There's this definition, and give me a moment, I'll translate. This is kind of like the, you know, scholar thing here, but this is really good. Hope is an essential quality in human flourishing. That's really important, you guys. Lack of hope is not good in the world of human flourishing. Hope is essential for flourishing. It's the aspiration, 
expectation or desire directed toward that which is possible or yet to happen. In other words, it's an expectation of something that isn't here yet. Hope is a concept derives from its rooted in pre- it derives from and is rooted in precedence, reliable enough to anticipate a possible outcome with a high degree of certainty. Okay, mouthful. But hope is anchored in God's promise and is predicated on precedence in God's dealing with Israel. That's biblical hope. And what that means, what this in a nutshell is saying, it's like, I am confident in the future because I know God of the past. I have an established history of trust with the God of Israel throughout all of scripture. You guys, that's why we're studying this story. I mean, it's like a lovely story and it's good to know where we stand when we're reading a different book of the Bible and the whole history and all of that. But more than that, we want to have an established history. We've been adopted into this established history of trust. We need to know the story of God's promises and character so that we can see and hold hope for what's still to come because we know that all of those past promises have become a true with a yes and amen. And so we can hold hope like a child that's learned through experience that the parent will offer care and provision every time. That if the parent says after dinner, we will go for ice cream. The child is completely confident that that promise will come to pass. That's, we want to be like ice cream kids when it comes to knowing the history of our God. The history now says we know these promises are trustworthy. How much more so the promises of God. But I think we can sometimes just really need a reminder or maybe need some help holding hope in the waiting When we look at the whole history, where do we live? We live in the era of new covenant in Christ, new temple, spirit dwells in us, the new priesthood, it's us. When was the last time you pondered that you've been called a priest, royal one at that? You've been called a royal priesthood. That's a big deal. To sit in these truths of where we are in the story now, this identity and purpose that has been spoken over those of you who follow Jesus, and to hold hope, I don't think we can muster that up on our own. I think that that needs to be rooted in something way deeper. I love that when the Apostle Paul is reaching out to an early church, remember for whom these promises still are a little more radical in their cultural imagination. They are so much closer to temple than we are and all those systems. And he's talking to them and he's saying like, this is such a big deal to live into all this new, new covenant, new priesthood, new temple. He's calling them to live into that identity and purpose as ministers of the new covenant. And he returns to our theme of veil for just a minute. I'm going to go back to that veil concept. Remember early in this series, Moses from time to time would go into the tent of the meeting. Moses was the mediator at one point in the story of the people of Israel. And he would meet with God as one meets with a friend face to face. He'd come away from these meetings. His face would be so radiant that I think it like freaks the people out with the holy radiance of reflection. And so he would wear a veil over his face after he came out of those meetings. It was just too much. So Paul is now talking to the church in Corinth, trying to work out what this means that we have this new way of mediation now. We have new way. And he reminds them, remember that old way with Moses, the one with the covenant and the law, all good stuff, but now it's been more fully completed in Christ. This is what Paul is saying. And he says, if that 
was a transitory glory. How much greater is this glory that lasts? So I'm picking up in 1 Corinthians 3, and I want you to note this. He roots his argument in hope. That's where he roots it. Therefore, since we have such a hope, such a hope is all of this new stuff that's been ushered in by Christ. Since we have that hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It's not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Remember, in Christ, that protective in-between is no longer needed, right? Picking up in 15. Even to this day when Moses is read, the veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, that veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces, no more mediation, guys, contemplate the Lord's glory. We're being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. I love one of the translations said, one degree of glory to another. That is what's happening in this stage where we are right now as followers of Jesus at the church. This week earlier, um, Emily and I started planning our worship together. Um, and we were talking about what we wanted to, to spend our time worshiping. Our worship forms us, right? And we talked about that theme. Like, let's talk about going back to the garden. Take me back to the garden where it was so easy to love and to trust. We needed to talk about the taste of eternity because I think we need that to hold hope. That taste of eternity is here in our midst. We need those little tastes, those moments do you guys know what I mean when I say those moments where the veil seems thin between your reality and eternity? There's a moment where you're like, I think that's a foretaste. I think I can taste that this isn't just a theory. I think I can taste that this hope I hold is rooted in something so real that I can taste that there is more to this story than what we are living in right now. I needed to be covered this morning in the reminder of where my hope comes from. And so I want to give that to you too, you guys. I want to just remind us, where do you sit in hope? And when it's hard to hold hope, we do so in community. But where does our hope come? I need to keep my eyes open in community to those one degree of glory to another that's happening. You guys, those are eternity moments. One little degree, one little step of sin not getting the last word, one little step of liberation, one little step of freedom in the darkness of our thoughts. Every one of those are little degrees of glory, and they're happening every single day in us, among us, through the spirit that dwells in us. And so I'm going to um, pray and hand it over to Emily, but I want to um, actually just end with this prayer, which the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. He says this, may the God of hope the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. Church, may we overflow with hope that is not defined by our circumstances, not defined or thwarted by monotony, not at all. It is just rooted completely in the story of God, in kingdom inbreaking moments, and what God is doing in and through us as the church, because the Holy Spirit is in our midst, and we can taste eternity in little moments like this. May it be so. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.